Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 205. This week, we talk with Mark Fussell about Service Fabric and Service Fabric Mesh. Robots have replaced lawyers and GitHub contributors. And you can finally pay someone to review your website while they're drunk. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. This week, we got Mark Fussell, Group Program Manager for Service Fabric, part of the Azure Core Compute Team. Welcome back, Mark. Great, thanks for being here. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a while since since we had you on, and I uh, I saw you at Build. We didn't record an episode at Build, but we're like, oh man, we got to we got to get you back on uh, to talk about Mesh. So I'm so glad that you're here. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to be here. There's a lot been happening since Build, and there's a lot happening inside Service Fabric. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Carl, what do we have for the comment of the week? Yes, I actually found a way to more easily check out the iTunes reviews from. Uh, Pretty much every country. Yes, he did. So this is one's going back a little bit to February, but it's from the Norway version of uh, the Apple Store, and it's from Hakan Dejedji. I murdered that, but hopefully you know uh, who you are and getting recognition. He says, <laughs> listening to the last episode, I had my mind blown when they mentioned the Control Windows Key and C keyboard command to make your uh, screen go grayscale. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you listen a little bit later on, we've got some uh, related news to that, but we'll get to that in due time. If you want to get mentioned on the show, Lake Haken, uh send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com. Comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher. We really like those five-star iTunes reviews. Shout out to Norway. That's so cool. I mean, it's just it's just really cool that people are listening to us around the world. It just blows my mind. <laughs> and it's pretty much everywhere, too. It's amazing how much reach we have. Yep. Uh, okay, so let's jump into the news. We have a couple news stories here. The first one, uh, I was laughing pretty hard before the podcast. It's uh, theuserisdrunk.com. And uh, do you want to describe what this is, Carl? Yeah, uh, this is a, a guy's side project. Uh, he says, your website should be so simple, a drunk person could use that. You can't test that. I will do it for you. I'll get very drunk and then review your website <laughs> and I'll send you my screencast. You'll get a video of me. And this isn't just some guy who's doing this, um, you know, with unrelated skill sets. He's a, he's a designer and a full stack web developer. And you can look at the projects that he's done before and see reviews he's done for other websites. He's actually pretty good. Yeah. He's like he's finding been- bugs. And I mean, I saw one where, I mean, it's just hilarious because he, he just gets to certain screens and he's just sitting there like, uh, he's confused. He starts clicking on stuff. Uh, the one he clicked on like this favorite button and then, you know, it said, oh, it's been favorited. And then he clicked it again and it like, it, he found a bug where it let you do it a whole bunch of times. He's like, click, 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 you know? So he's, it's, it's also like the guy is actually testing your stuff too, which I think is really cool. Yeah. So- and he's, he's done quite a bit and. Like, even if you want to look at this for the entertainment value, I mean, just yeah. check out the videos. But, you know, if, if you uh, might be in a situation that uh, you could use his services, go ahead and check him out. So how much is it, Carl? Uh, he does have a price breakdown. Uh, and what's really funny is you can do have him do just drunk, uh, just sober, drunk and sober, and drunk, sober, and with my mom. <laughs> <laughs> 
Does he tell you what alcohol he gets as well? Like, is it more expensive? Yeah, no, he does. So <laughs> you you like, can for like, an additional for fee, you can specify uh, the exact beverages. Oh, that I you're didn't drinking. even re- I didn't realize that that there was an option to specify. No, yes. I thought. It- I thought it was funny because the one I, I can't say what he said because uh, then we'd have There's to profanity. mark this as not clean. But um, he's like, "I'm drinking a Manhattan," and then then there was some swearing after that, uh, going into his reasons for drinking that particular drink. But uh, yes, he does at the beginning describe what uh, what he's drinking. But there's a big difference between Budweiser and 18 year whiskey yeah, or whiskey in yeah, terms exactly. of the cost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder if the, if the test what class of well. drunk drinkers are you optimizing your website for? Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, the high end package. So the, 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 the drunken sober package, which is great because he'll, he'll review it while he's drunk. And then, uh, he'll also do a sober private review afterwards. Uh, that's, uh, $7.99, $799. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I love that he has all the previous videos out there right on the front page. So uh, I recommend going and checking those out. I have a feeling I'm going to watch quite a few of those, actually. Um, Okay, what else we have here? Um, A bot that is uh, human competitive patches and automatic program repair with Repairinator. Oh, that's quite a title. Yeah, I, I think I, there was like a few follow up articles on this, but I, I tried going to the like the canonical source. Yeah, so that was the canonical source. But really, what this is is uh, there's this open source project bot called the Repairinator, and what it's trying to do is it monitoring several open source projects and using AI to find bugs, and then not not just get a a patch for a bug, but like a human competitive patch for a bug. So it, it's something that you know sometimes you kind of do some code reformatting with a tool, and you're like, yeah, that's definitely came from a tool. It's not something that a human wrote. This is trying to get something that's logically correct, but also looks like a person would do it. And then not only that, but they're impersonating a human. You know, it's looking like a human did this, not that a bot did it. And they've gotten uh, several um, pull requests that have been uh, successfully uh, merged into other projects done in a pretty quick process. So what what they're specifically looking for is when uh, something happens in in an open source project, a CI CD process kicks off and they're looking for failing tests. And then Mm -hmm. what they're trying to do is using AI to correct code to make that test pass. So they are trying to, you know, put some logic in there to really optimize for, hey, I know I can say this is correct because there's some sort of, you know, test that's backing that up. But um, going from January through June, uh, I don't know if they've had more, but they specifically say that they had five um, pull requests that were accepted. And they've include like comments from um, whoever accepted them, the, ranging from thanks for the patch to it's just merged or cool. Thanks for going through the eclipse process and for the fix. So, you know, some of them were, you know, you know, these people were, you know, um, thinking that they were accepting these from a, an actual person. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where it's pretty interesting that, you know, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog or a bot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Robots are people too, Carl. Yes. So I don't know. You just got to be really careful because what happens when this thing starts patching itself <laughs> is hopefully it's not a maintainer of its own project because <laughs> that's the thing we need to watch out for, guys. <laughs> this is super cool. Like I am I am fascinated by the fact that it's able to find these. Um, I mean, this tells me I know there's some things like built into Visual Studio that that do this. 
uh, just tells me that we need something a little bit stronger in there, right? Like something that pops up and is like, wait a second, like you screwed up and I know how to fix this for you. Please trust me. Um, but like you said, I mean, people just don't trust the tools as much as they trust other humans. So, um, yeah, that's a tough, that's a tough challenge. We need yeah. like a, we need like Amanda Silver, like the, you know, like a fake Amanda Silver to like Skype in and be like, Hey, I, there's this thing wrong with your code. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's pretty good if we could take some of the uh, more you know, typical bugs that you find that's the more menial ones. And then you just focus yeah. on some of the harder ones. That's what I think about it. Yeah. Cause I have seen like AI for, for like finding and fixing bugs and matching with stack overflow and things like that. So, I mean, this is like this, I, I think this is going to be a pretty big revolution in, in IDEs, right? I mean, it, it, it'll tell you, Hey, I see what you're trying to do. And you just made like five silly mistakes. And like I said, the, I think the key thing is here's what, here's how you could easily fix these. Would you like me to fix them for you? Yeah. It's the personification of IntelliSense in Visual Studio. Exactly. It's <laughs> that turned into a bot. Exactly. <laughs> bot telesense. <laughs> cool. Um, and then speaking of AI, um, we have two sort of related articles. Uh, AI versus lawyers, the ultimate showdown. And this is an infographic. Do you want to go through this, Carl? Yeah. It, we're going to have both an infographic and the article that it came from. So okay. feel free to compare the two. But, you know, in a very similar thing, um, you know, non-disclosure agreements are something that lawyers have to deal with. And they're kind of mundane. They're kind of similar, but, you know, they're all different. Um, so what they did is they gave 20 top lawyers in the U.S. these five different NDAs to go over and, and look at. And um, they also gave this to a bot and to process. And uh, – just kind of looking at this, so there is five different NDAs. It took an average for the lawyers 92 minutes to process all of these. It took the uh, AI 26 seconds to do this. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. So there's definitely a speed thing here. Um, there is also, um, I think, 30 different legal issues across those, 11 A4 pages, 153 paragraphs, 3,213 clauses. Um, and the uh, AI had a slightly better accuracy level, 94% compared to 85%. So, I mean, what I really like doing, looking at is looking at this compared to the, uh, the bot that finds bugs. And, you know, there's a lot of mundane things that we do, like Mark said, all those little bugs that, you know, we could catch. Um, but if there's AIs there to get the simple stuff for us, then we can concentrate on the harder, meteor work. And if AI could be tuned not to replace us, but to make us better, that's where I see that, you know, people's acceptance of AI really expanding at a, at a quicker pace. Yeah, I think this is a good example of where like it's it basically can flag things for you, right? It's like the it's it will say, hey, you really should focus on these. I, I do worry then um, if this AI is available to everybody. Then you, then are we going to get this thing? You know how you get these like emails that look like they're like a jumbled mess or, or they, they have like some subject that's like totally unrelated, you know, it's because they know like what actually gets through spam filters. So are we going to start, is, is the legal jargon going to start getting worse and worse? You know, it's like, oh, they're going to find this thing. But if we, you know, we bought the same software they did. So we'll, we'll obfuscate it a little bit. We'll run it through until it doesn't detect it. And then we'll send over the contract. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that deviates a little bit from the point. I mean, that's a way to yeah. use it maliciously. But like, oh yeah, yeah. Let, let's look at like uh, you know how 
automotive companies are are getting AI into the vehicles because people don't really want at this point in time, at least mainstream, like fully automated drivers, but they're really comfortable with uh, that dynamic cruise control, lane assist, where it keeps you in your lane, you know, that blind spot detection, all those little things, that parallel park features, all that stuff that still takes a lot of processing power, a lot of intelligence to uh, control those accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet leave you in the final control of what happens and what's, you know, what's done with the vehicle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you look at these, how can we use these different AI things to really augment us and make us better at whatever yeah. task we're doing? I, I think that's where AI today can shine. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I see that happening a lot where it takes on and it makes you think a little bit more differently and it makes you become, it pushes the boundaries of what people are capable of as well. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's a little challenging because I think, um, you know, Mr. Mr. Terrible Lawyer here, the lowest performing one, like he scored a 67. So I, I think what you guys are saying is like Mr. 67 there, he does his legal review and then he runs the software and he goes, oh, crap, like <laughs> there's three things I missed that could have cost my company millions of dollars. So he goes back and, you know, he, fi- he figures those out and, and that makes him better. Um, but it's I, it's like spell check for lawyers. Yeah. But I do, I do worry about the flip side. So spell check is a good analogy. Um, has spell check made you a better speller? <laughs> like I, I, I think it's, I think it's very debatable. Like there are some words where I'm like, man, I know I spell that wrong all the time because spell check keeps picking it up. Uh, but at the same time, there's things where I spell it wrong. I'm like, up oh, spell check. Got it. I'm good to go. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm worried about something like this where they're like, I'm going to have the AI take a pass at it. And then, uh, I just cut my work in half cause I can just go investigate uh, a couple things here. So I, yeah, I think we're going to struggle with this for a long time and, and how to integrate this in. I mean, I am, I'm always like pro technology, like the technology is going to win. Um, but I'm just, I'm not sure how it will play out in this, in this particular case, this, this type of, uh, this type of AI, uh, should be interesting. And I guess that the same thing could be said for programming, right? I mean, I talked about it finding, Hey, you had these bugs, you know? So now it's like, wow, hmm, I can double my programming speed. I can write a whole bunch of sloppy code, let the computer pick it up and fix it. But let me give you the controversial one. What if the medical doctor, which, because basically this is looking at a huge source of information becoming better. What if the medical doctor was made sure that your analysis of your results was 95% accurate instead of 67% accurate? You'd want Yeah. Well, I I believe that today um, there are um, uh, the Watson AI. When when doctors opt into using Watson AI to confirm their diagnoses, they have to accept what Watson gives it. Yeah. that, that's interesting that it's in those terms and conditions. Like if you disagree with Watson, you have to still give its recommended yeah. approach. And, and they've yeah. shown this, like they, they've shown uh, AI running on cancer results and things like that. And they, there's you know, little differences that can, account, can it can it find that you know, a human might have missed otherwise, or gives them a, at least a second view. Yeah, no, that's what I want to happen. Right. I want my doctor. I want my doctor Googling, right? Like I want him <laughs> typing <laughs> exactly. in, I want him typing in my symptoms <laughs> and being like, Oh, it's this. Um, unfortunately, like I don't, that's not really what happens. Like, you know, what ends up happening is somebody else does the Googling and, and then they're like, oh, it's this. And they've like misdiagnosed it. And then you go to the doctor and the doctor like, doesn't look at that. Cause they're smart. And they're like, you have a fever. Obviously it's an infection. Here are some antibiotics. Be on your way. You know? So it's like, it's the, the, they, they can be used in combination to do the right thing. Um, 
I just, I hope that that is actually what happens <laughs> because I, I, I worry that it's going to, you know, it'll make people lazy. Like I said, the, the spell check is, is just another example of that. Does that make us better? Um, probably, it probably makes the end results better, but does it make people lazier? Maybe. So anyway, we probably already spent too much time on that one <laughs> unless there's any final comments, but otherwise I'll move on. Um, what do you have here? Po- pull request successfully merged starting build. Oh, this is the GitHub thing. Yeah, I, I thought that was a great title yeah. for the GitHub blog. Um, yeah. And uh, so for those of you who do not remember, uh, Microsoft was uh, buying GitHub and uh, that started several months ago and it takes a few months to get through all the paperwork and lawyers and governments and all that. And uh, actually today as we're recording the 29th of October is when it finally goes through and Microsoft uh, officially maintains ownership of GitHub. Right. And along with that, Nat Freeman uh, becomes a CEO. Yep. Of GitHub. <laughs> of GitHub. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because, you know, you mentioned pull requests and I can't help but think of our previous story. Like, I hope all those people over at uh, at, at GitHub are not bots and that this was <laughs> automated. <laughs> Hopefully this was submitted by a human. Uh, but very cool. And then actually the other the other news story they just thought of that was just breaking just the other day or just yesterday, I guess, was that... Uh, um, I'm totally blanking on it now. IBM, uh, IBM purchased Red Hat, um, which yeah. that was, I'll let you go out and read the comments for yourself. I won't even repeat any of them, but that was, uh, that that's interesting. Um, people are, are not, not too excited about what the future holds for, for Red Hat, Red Hat, but we'll give them the benefit of the doubt and we'll, we'll see what happens there. Yeah. I, you know, I, you know, I, just to, you know, give a few more details to people who aren't going to, mm-hmm. you know, search for that, you know, Red Hat has a lot of cloud-based technologies in particular. I think OpenShift is one of the yep. biggest ones and IBM is really trying to make, uh, make themselves competitive in the cloud landscape. So by them buying Red Hat, um, that gives them, you know, potentially a huge boost in those areas, but it also puts in, uh, into kind of, you know, worry, you know, what's going to happen to those technologies? Are they going to stay, um, you know, freer and work cross cloud or is IBM going to make those a little bit more of a works better with IBM pieces? Yeah. And to be fair, like people had the same concerns with Microsoft buying GitHub. Um, so, you know, people, people just worry, you know, like don't, don't destroy the thing that I love, please. I I think that when you look at the track records of the two companies in recent times, Microsoft does have cases where it can point back to where it, you know, kept those products and and companies and teams intact and going, whereas people are a little bit more concerned about IBM doing the same thing. Yep. Okay. Well, let's move into the the good stuff, which is service fabric. And I I actually was, the first thing I was going to ask you was, what is mesh? But I, I think we actually have to take a step back. I mean, we did have an episode on service fabric. But maybe you could give us like the 60 second overview of what service fabric is just for anybody who, you know, hasn't been exposed to it. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, yeah, service fabric is it's a it's a service that we host today and it's got a set of it's a we call it a microservices uh, a platform that mm-hmm. um, the convention nowadays when you build a service pretty much is that how you build a service that you want to run at scale is you use a microservices architecture approach. You know, three years ago, people were debating, is that the way you do it? Um, but by now, most people have accepted that if you want to build a service that runs at scale using a Microsoft design approach, whereby you break code down into smaller pieces of code, that makes it more agile, and you can make teams independently, and you scale individual pieces is the way it works. And Service Fabric is a Microsoft platform, includes 
how you run your code, as well as programming models to develop against it all. And we use it extensively to build those services at Microsoft. And then we have hundreds of thousands of customers now who are using it to build their own services. Okay, cool. That was that was going to be my comment. Was I know it was used extensively within uh, within Microsoft. So you know, it was a first party solution, and then it uh, um, you know it was one of those things where it's like, hey, lots of people in the world could uh, yeah. <laughs> could benefit from this. So I'm glad that it's out there in the world. Yeah, yeah, and that's the, exactly. That was always the goals actually of the program was to kind of use it internally, mm-hmm. and then and then give it away for everyone for free so they can just use it. Very cool. And then we should dive into Mesh. So that's what it was announced at uh, Build. So what is Mesh? Well, what we found when people started using Service Fabric, uh, we have we, actually, we have two offerings of it today. We have one version which we call Service Fabric Standalone, where you can take Service Fabric runtime and you can go off to your own data center. You can install Service Fabric there and you manage the hardware as, as in you find the physical machines. You have to set up this, this cluster, which is the thing that where you put your code and you run your application. And then, of course, you build your application. So you have to think of three things. Uh, and then we had an Azure offering where we, we call this a, a dedicated clusters, where effectively, you know, obviously you don't need to have a machine anymore because Azure provides more, but mm-hmm. Service Fabric will set up a cluster for you and you build your applications. Well, even that, we found that people had a hard time managing the cluster itself, scaling it in, scaling it out, having to think about how you patch the OS. And there's a lot of control that you get being able to have that cluster you see the types of VMs you can choose, but there's additional overhead there. Mm-hmm. Service Fabric Mesh takes all that away from you. So you have all the fun and excitement of simply building application. And uh, and then what happens is we, Microsoft, stand up big clusters of machines. We manage the clusters on your behalf. And then you just simply build the application now with a microservices pattern in ARM and deploy that into Service Fabric Mesh. So yes, that's, that's really what, what it's want. about. that's what i think i think that's what i've obviously that's probably what the majority of developers want right exactly yes yeah yeah exactly i mean we we just i mean the other way to think about service fabric mesh in a nutshell is it's a first class arm model as in azure resource model for designing a microservice application an application that consists of smaller pieces of code services and you give that to azure and tell it to run it Um, and it runs it you know, at scale, and you can update individual pieces. In fact, with that regard, you don't even actually even know it's really running on Service Fabric. Kind of Service Fabric, really, to some degree, is an implementation detail because you just simply are describing this application. And what happens with Mesh is it takes this application, it launches it in high-side containers, inside Hyper-V containers, it puts an isolated network around it, and then exposes an external ports or a number of ports through the Azure Load Balancer. So all this configuration and policies that you want done is described to you um, of how you want to build your application. So if I already have something that's set up and working in Service Fabric, one, can I move that to Mesh? And, and two, should I? Uh, well, uh, so the answer is, is right now today, we can not we can move certain applications, but not all of them. Uh, one of the great benefits we did provide in Service Fabric today were these two very productive runtimes, one called Reliable Services and one called Reliable Actors. And they allowed you to build these microservices apps. Um, at this point in time, we're going to make those. We are going to make those available in Service Fabric Mesh uh, in due course. But they they were actually quite tightly coupled to the the cluster model that we had, and and so that made it makes it a little bit tricky to move some of those across. So moving them directly um, is not. We're working on it. It's not possible right now. Um, what we have to do instead is we've done some things to help you migrate some of those existing applications much, much more easily. 
Um, going forward, you know, right now, um, you know, Silver Track Mesh is still in preview. Uh, you know, we're going to be spending probably at least, it won't GA until next year. So we've got a public preview program around all that. Um, and it's mostly designed around for you to take uh, one of the, the goals of Surface Fabric is actually to allow you to have any runtime. So we want to open it up so you can bring any framework, any runtime of your choice and not be necessarily tied to any specific runtime that we provide. So, yes, in the longer goal, you'll, you'll get there for moving some of your existing applications right now. Um, that right now, you know, mostly is bringing your own runtimes and the application models that you want to bring. Okay. Yeah, so makes sense. Yeah, so I know with Service Fabric, you have a lot of control uh, with exactly what's going on with your application and the infrastructure. What what are you giving up in order to uh, work with Mesh, or is is it kind of like you do less and you are responsible for less? I'd actually say you're not giving up anything. Uh, the only thing that you're giving up is this control over the visibility of the machines that you used to see before. Um, to a large degree, because what happens with mesh, uh, here's the important thing that everyone has to really understand is when you're tr we're slowly going up the extraction levels to build applications. And people really don't want to start thinking about managing infrastructure and machines in any way. And um, what they want to do is think about building applications and services. So, you know, what you're really giving up is that lack of control over the machines itself. So here's what some customers might want to give up. You know, there are customers who have to run specific VM images. Their company says, I have to run this particular VM image. Well, in Mesh, you might not want to run that particular image. Um, some customers have to say, I have to run this virus checker on these set of machines. And that's where you probably have to rock, drop down and you know, probably use the service of a cluster environment because you want direct control of the machines. But if you don't, we're actually starting to build a lot of our services in Microsoft on top of service fabric mesh itself. So, you know, that's the level of expecting scale that we'll have, you know, new services. Uh, we want to say, don't manage your own cluster, build them on mesh, and we'll have one platform that you can build even large scale services on, uh, you know, things like Intune. We fully expect Intune, MS Teams, Microsoft Office 365, um, all these customers actually to build on top of it all um, internally. Um, and so I would say that really you're not really giving anything up, but you're actually freeing yourself up to be more productive. Okay. Uh, you know what? Whenever I think about this, really reminds me of uh, Azure Functions, where I just have some, some function code and I just say, you go and execute it for me. Um, so I'm wondering what, what is like the, the smallest piece of functionality then that works with service fabric. So if I want to create a microservice, do I, is there like a whole bunch of ceremony around that? Do I have to like create a container or can I just, is it just some code that I can deploy easily? What does that look like? Yeah. So the simplest thing that you can run is a single container instance running inside a single app. So the way it works is you have an ARM definition. Um, mm -hmm. you describe an application inside ARM. So think of any of the resources you see, you see inside Azure today with its resource model. Uh, you can have an application as a service type, the resource type called service fabric mesh application, and it can contain a single service that has a single container uh, definition running inside it all. So you can run a single container instance that runs inside this application. And so that's typically what we would see is that we, you know, if you want the simplest type of application, and if you go to our tutorial, we have a Hello World application there. And all it does is it deploys, it deploys a website uh, that says Hello World Mesh. Uh, it runs that inside a container and launches that as part of your application. So the key is, is everything is run uh, inside containerized images. All of those get built and pushed inside 
to a, a repository such as the Azure Container Repo or Docker Hub. Uh, you pull down all your individual uh, containers that are running for every single one of your microservices, and those all get constructed inside an application. But, but the great benefit that you get from Mesh is not just the fact that it runs a set of containers in an application model, but it provides other services as part of this. One of the most crucial things is that we have this intelligent routing service that allows you to do calls between the microservices um, on the same set of application or across applications. So this intelligent routing allows you to do communication within your application or across applications. And there you can start to do things like send 20% of my traffic to this new instance of the service, do blue-green deployments, communicate across services. Um, and all of this actually is built under the covers on top of Envoy, uh, which is a, a reverse proxy that we've used to do this communication framework. Okay, I'm I'm trying to keep up here. <laughs> so I'm looking. I found the I found the uh, resource provider or the 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 template for Hello World, yes. and it's pulling down uh, Azure Mesh dash Hello World. So so basically, I, I guess one thing I wanted to kind of confirm. So this is just a Docker container, right? It's just a Docker container. Okay. Yes, everything gets built inside a Docker container. So, you know, the experience is you as a developer, you write some code, uh, you, 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 you write it with any framework of your choice, use Python, use Go, use .NET Core, um, mm -hmm. build your applications. Build them all into containers. Uh, you can use, you know, communicate between them just with those standard HTTP endpoints. Okay. Uh, you can wrap those all up into, a, a, into individual services, which are described in the R model, Put those inside the application, uh, open up any public ports that you want through the Azure Load Balancer, and then deploy. So it's it's as simple as that. That's what I'm saying. There's really nothing uh, special about it other than you know you actually have this uh, very well-described application model, and then you have all of these high-level services to provide uh, routing messages between your individual microservices. Well, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's, it's super awesome because it makes it super productive. Um, and then... And then what actually happens is that there are then other services that get provided that you can take advantage of if you want to. So, for example, Serverific Mesh provides lots of storage options for your container. Mm. One of the toughest things today is to create, you know, yes. how do I store all the state with my container? Where do I yes. run it all? So out of the box, you get volume drivers for your container. Uh, now, Serverific Mesh provides you two. There's one that allows you to attach Azure file storage, so you can write everything out to Azure files. And then we provide this built-in one called the Service Fabric Volume Driver that allows you to store your state onto local disks and replicate it between those. So it deals with like hard problems around the storage replication, for example. Um, another thing that's super cool that it does is that every single one of those services has security identity associated with it or managed security identity. So now you simply deploy your application. It can go and reach out to uh, uh, Azure Active Directory, get an identity associated with it, and so now you can communicate to your Cosmos TB database, for example. Um, so those kind of built-in capabilities of giving you identity at the service level, uh, giving you the ability to have storage attached to the actual uh, container itself for long-term persistent state uh, are things that you get out of the box that make writing applications even easier. Okay. So I was also looking into this and it was, talking about how mesh can detect and deal with failures. What, what is it exactly is it doing there? Well, what that means is that you get to describe your application. Um, you have it as a set of these services which have containers. You deploy it and run it. Uh, now, 
this is running under the covers on a you know a large service cluster that we host. But say you know for some reason there's a bug in your application and the application crashes, or say even the physical machine it, you know dies and you know is, is inside the data center. Uh, Service Direct Mesh is responsible for restarting that instance of that uh, application or that particular service, launches it on another machine, and will hook up the communication to it all again. So as far as you're concerned as a developer, you know you will always make sure that the availability and the reliability guarantees are there. So yeah, that's one of the key tenets of the entire platform itself. Yeah, we'll always make sure that everything that's describing your application is always running. Um, and then you can scale things out. So say you have an application that consists of you know an instance of one service, and you say, well, I want 10 instances of this service. All you do is an ARM deployment. You just say, instead of one instance, I want 10 instances and we can scale it all out. So there's this availability, scalability um, uh, paradigm that allows you just sort of to scale out and deal with failovers. I, I do want to talk about that scale a bit more, but first I did want to understand like, um, the, the way that this service works and the way that you sort of set it up really reminds me of Kubernetes or specifically like AKS, the, the Azure Kubernetes service. So like in your mind, like is, what is the difference between this and like AKS? Well, the difference between this and AKS, AKS today, uh, and you know, AKS is a fabulous service. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, you know, I actually work on the same team as the AKS team. So we actually all work very closely together. But AKS, that's actually that's actually great to hear, by the way. I mean, oh yeah, yes, it's yes. really cool. Oh, like, yes. it's not like oh, those dang AKS people. Oh no, no, no. <laughs> we're, we're in fact, in fact, in fact, now uh, the AKS team and the service traffic team and actually even uh, service, uh, app service are all very much yeah. aligned on the, in the same team. So we regularly try to align uh, capabilities across these things. So we work very closely with the AKS guys, um, and we're actually trying to share as much um, of our. We are lighting. So, for example, they have a thing called Open Service Broker that they're developing, which allows you to abstract away a call to a particular storage thing across cloud platforms. And we're integrating with that um, oh, as cool. one example of how we're working closely. But the way I look at AKS today is it's a little bit it's closer to what Service Fabric, the clusters are today. You set up this cluster, you set up this environment, mm. you're still responsible for scaling this uh, cluster in and out. You still get to see the, the machines you're running on. Um, you know, it doesn't take any of the application deployment. Um, it, there's nothing to do with describing applications in Kubernetes. It's still your responsibility to go off and decide what framework you're going to use and how you're going to build all that. And you have to sort of stitch that all together and create your own application platform on top of that. Um, Service Fabric Mesh is a level of abstraction across above both of those. You know, it's a true microservices um, description of how you deploy an application into Azure. Um, and these capabilities of the intelligent routing between services, the storage attachment to the containers, uh, the ability to open up public ports to your application, update the number of instances, means that you don't actually see anything to do with an orchestrator. Um, in many ways, orchestrators, I predict in about a year and a year's half time, will be boring and uninteresting. Uh, because you don't really want to talk at that level. No. You're trying to build your application level. So that's really the fundamental difference is that, you know, it allows you to not have to manage any of that infrastructure that you have to do with AKS today and you have to do with Service Fabric, the clusters today. Um, but it takes you just purely into the build of my applications instead of individual microservices approach. That's okay. the fundamental I, re- I really like that because... You know, like I found, I mean, AKS worked great. Like I just ran a command line and boom, I had this cluster running. But then, 
it was still this thing that I have to babysit just because of how yeah. Kubernetes works, you know, and yes. then I'd have, then I get some weird error and I'm like, yep. uh, okay, searching, you know, for Kubernetes and this like error. And then I find a stack overflow thing and, you know, Kubernetes yeah. is great. Like don't, I'm definitely not bashing Kubernetes, but at the same oh. time, like I just didn't want to have to babysit Kubernetes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Kubernetes is fantastic. My fantastic yeah. ecosystem. There's a lot of excitement around that. You, Azure Kubernetes service is growing very, very fast. We're very excited about how that's doing so well inside Azure at the moment. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you want that complexity taken away from you. And this is exactly what we've seen, which is why, you know, in some ways, you know, the service fabric in mesh really ought to be diluted down. It's really just a ARM a microservices platform of how you build an application and deploy it into Azure. Um, it's not really, you know, strongly tied to service fabric in any way. It's just a that's a way of describing your application. So yeah, that's that's the thing that we see all the time. You know, once you've still got all this complexity of building like a front end gateway that does the routing up to all your individual services, you have to deal with the failovers, you have to deal with the discovery, you have to deal with the telemetry and the diagnostics. Um, how do you do A/B testing? How do you do security? How do you do certificate management? All those other things that go far beyond just the orchestrator itself. Don't wait for users to report problems. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications, supports all major programming languages and platforms, and integrates with your current development workflow tools too. There's a free 14-day trial. And it takes minutes to implement. So start resolving issues in your application and check it out today at raygun.com. Just to kind of like really nail down what the scaling looks like, you know, how, how does it know or how, how do we configure mesh that says, hey, I need at least minimum this or maximum this so I can stay within budgets? Or, you know, can you have an open-ended like, hey, that's Black Friday. Let's Let's remove all limits and make sure we don't go down. You can do exactly that. So in the ARM definition of the application, you describe, here's my application, and here's service number one, and here's service number two. Each service, you can, again, just have a, a property inside there that says launch two instances of this service, or you can launch 10 instances of that service. And then every one of those services, because it runs inside a container, you can put resource constraints on it. So you can say, this container only uses two CPUs, and I want it to have you know one gig of memory. So those resource constraints and at any time you can go into the arm description of your application resubmit a new arm model in the idempotent way of arm is inside azure and simply say instead of having 10 instances i want a thousand instances uh, we inside microsoft inside the service fabric team manage the clusters and as the clusters start to grow and more scale pushes out to that we'll expand the capacity of the clusters that are available so, for example, as we get closer to Black Friday and we see that more and more people are pushing the boundaries of their application because they've changed it to say, don't run five instances, run a thousand, we'll expand the underlying physical clusters that your application is running on. So for you, you don't know how it's running. It's simply uh, there's a multi-tenant environment where you deploy your application and there is unlimited scale of how you choose your application. Um, you can also set rules that say when I hit a particular threshold, scale up and scale down. Um, those are policy-based driven rules, um, as in most things inside service fabric mesh. So, for example, 
you'll be able to say, when the number of requests per second come into my application hits over this particular threshold, I want you to spin up two more instances of my uh, individual microservice, or I want to, or if the number of requests per second drop below a threshold, spin it down to this particular number. So all that's happening inside service network mesh is we're spinning up new small containers across this extremely large cluster uh, running under the covers view and making sure that all those things are isolated and secure um, and that container startup time and shutdown time is very fast, um, which is where we're spending most of our work to get you very fast latent, uh, very fast startup and shutdown times for the containers that run today. Whether those are Windows containers or Linux containers. And the beauty is you'll be able to mix, mix and match. So I can describe an application that consists of Windows and Linux containers. That's um, cool. Use any code I want. One's written in Go, one's written in Python, one's written in Node or .NET Core. Deploy them all inside this environment um, and just communicate over my chosen protocol, you know, like HTTP, and then spin up instances and spin them down. So that keeping on with the Black Friday example, let's just say Black Friday is really kicking in and I've got tons of people hitting my site, but yes. I notice something's wrong with it. Does Service Mesh allow me to update my website while having zero downtime when I'm in those crunch times? Correct. Yes. So that's the other key element around this all uh, is we spent many years building in Service Fabric, the underlying technology, how we do rolling upgrades across your application. So um, the the interesting part about Mesh is that we take away um, a lot of the pain of how to manage those versions for you. So before inside you know, Service Fabric today, you had to sort of update the individual files to put versioning changes inside it all. With Service Fabric Mesh, because it's just a new ARM deployment, we track all those ARM changes for you. Um, and now, if say you're, say you're in a bug, so you realize, oh, I'm going to push out a new change for my uh, website in time, you will build a new container image for your application, push that out into your repo, uh, submit a new change uh, into uh, Azure. Um, that rolling upgrade will start to roll out and it will make sure it'll pull down the new container, start it up on the machine, direct the traffic to that, uh, pull down, uh, make sure the old container shuts down gracefully and direct the new traffic to that. And so you can do a rolling upgrade across um, the set of machines, uh, making sure that you've deployed new code with no downtime. So yes, cool. it's, it's a pretty cool <laughs> capability that is, um, especially because you know you got to make sure that uh, you know there's there's you know, no interruption in any running service. Yeah, I know we talked about Hello World before, but if uh, if I am if I've never taken the time to actually learn Service Fabric and I'm like, wow, this mesh thing sounds pretty cool. Um, like, is is that going to be pretty easy for me to pick up? And, and is my lack of service fabric knowledge going to be good or bad for me? It's it, actually a lack of service fabric knowledge is kind of not really that relevant. Um, that's the interesting part of this. Okay. Um, the, the thing that you really want to be able to get good at is building things with your favorite programming language and your framework, building them into Docker containers, and then really deploying those through the ARM definition. Um, there are some particular pieces of it that we've done to make sure that some of the uh, some of the best capabilities of service traffic today are available inside there. So, for example, one of the key areas from a developer perspective that we've improved a lot that was a key uh, uh, value add that service traffic provide was state management and these reliable services and reliable collections. So we had a lot of people come back to us and say, when I build uh, applications today, I use your programming model called reliable services and I have to derive all from these base classes. And it gets kind of a little bit... Uh, invasive. 
Um, mm-hmm. Instead, we took all those reliable collections that allow you to do replicate a state for different data structures like a queue and a dictionary and separated, it, separated them out into separate NuGet packages, for example, for .NET framework. So now I can go into any .NET application, pull in some NuGet packages for these reliable collections and use them that way. So that's kind of the value add that you get from Service Fabric. Um, But if you just want to get an app up and running, you don't really have to know a lot about Service Fabric. That makes a lot of sense having those as separate packages. I always wondered, you know, like, because they they never seem dependent on Service Fabric specifically, like the reliable collections. So maybe they were. I don't know how they were tied in, but I'm like, man, I just like to just be able to use these things. (laughs) Exactly. So so what happens now? So now what's coming is I can go into my Java language and pull in the reliable collections and get these these, uh, replicated state structures. I can go into my node application, pull them in. I can pull it. We'll do it for Go. We'll do all these other different languages around this one. And I think that's pretty cool, actually. Um, That that makes it now so that you can really – Decide if you want to, uh, you know, use these replicated data structures for some of your state management. You can. Um, so that's kind of some of the you know, aspect. The rolling upgrades of Service Fabric is key, um, but mostly we've talked about how we sort of enhance this uh, microservices platform so that you have to not necessarily know anything about Service Fabric to a large degree. Man, you're getting me really excited about this. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. Actually, it is incredibly easy because we've been showing this to developers and saying, yeah. Uh, yeah, look at this. We've, we've done some great integration with Visual Studio as well. So we're closely yeah. working with the Visual Studio team. Uh, because uh, ARM, you know, is not the, the favorite environment necessarily inside Visual Studio, we've also done inside Visual Studio, we have just a, a YAML description for your mm. services Oh, that's as well. great. Okay, and cool. That, and that way you can work inside Visual Studio or v, VS Code, You're both of them yeah. very well integrated. You can use YAML just to describe your application and services and then under the covers, we just translate that to ARM as well. So as oh, a developer, that's cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. So as a developer, you could choose this uh, yeah, other – well, you know, we'll introduce other formats maybe, but at the moment it's done YAML. Um, yeah. If you want to work with the ARM, you can. But this is super cool now, so I can go in there and just describe my application. You get full container debugging on your local machine. This is amazingly cool. You're inside <laughs> Visual Studio. You can take an ASP.NET Core app. Um, you can say target inside mesh. It, in, it immediately adds the Docker file, builds it all into containers, runs it on your local machine, um, and you'll you have almost seamless debugging of your containers, Windows containers, all of these containers inside Visual Studio for your mesh application. And then you can just right click, publish, deploy, either through uh, Azure DevOps or directly from Visual Studio into yeah, Azure Service Fabric Mesh that's running inside Azure. And that makes it pretty cool, actually, as a developer experience. So we've been showing this off quite a lot, and people have been going, oh, wow, that makes it incredibly easy for me to build these container applications now um, you know, as an application that's just these microservices and then just deploy them for me. Um, especially now we have all this intelligent routing that allows you to do the communication between your services. Um, and I think that's the important point, because the other comparison that we get is people say, well, you know, ACI, I have Azure Container Instances yeah. today. How's that, how's that different? Well, ACI, I think of it as just like they're these single containers that run. Yeah, it's a whole bunch of silos. It's a whole bunch of silos. Exactly. So- That's why it's never been that appealing to me. Like we, I have run, you know, everybody thought I was crazy when I was like putting, I was putting everything that I have into Docker. And uh, so like the MS Dev Show website, for example, actually runs in, in Docker, but like we're, we're ready to go. Like we can run on, on mesh today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's what it is. ACI, yeah. the way I think about it is ACI is to 
Um, it's like individual VMs, but for container yeah. world. Yeah, so you got anything, but there's no concept of an application. If you think about yeah, you got to wire them up yourself. Yeah, yeah, if you think about servicing mesh, it stitches them all together and gives you all the intelligent routing, the storage, um, and the uh, identity associated with them. And all of a sudden, you have that, then you're away. Yeah, because I I ended up uh, to get it, you know, because I did I did I have gotten our website running in like every possible variation, including ACI, the Azure Container Instances, and what I ended up doing be, just because the the uh, you know wiring up like Nginx and like one container and then like Node in a different or actually it wasn't yes. Node it was um um. Actually, we're using static files, but I was using Express. Well, anyway, I was using like multiple pieces. And and the way that, that people normally do it is you have like one container that is the site and then you have another one that's sort of the, this front-end proxy. But I'm just like, uh, well, that that's a pain because now I have to like – have like a YAML file for, for that. And then I guess now I'd have to have a different one for, for mesh. And then for ACI, I'd have to run two different ACI instances and then I'd have to wire them up manually. So I just jammed everything into one container, which I think is like an anti-pattern, but uh, yeah, so this, this is much better. I like this. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, today, whenever you have any ingress data, you have to have that sort of gateway thing, whether it's yeah. NGINX or HA proxy Kestrel. or Kestrel or traffic or Envoy. And you have to have those things. Well, if you imagine that one of those is built into your application in Servicerific Mesh and you don't see it, and all you describe is, I want to run a policy file. So the idea of Mesh is mostly that you describe things through policies, like right. route these traffic from here to this service or turn on uh, these resource constraints. And now you take away all of this pain of having to build these infrastructure things yourself. Cool. So that's the cool part of it all. Yeah. It's a... Uh, so we're pretty excited by this all. We have a whole bunch of uh, internal teams building on it. So, for example, Linux Functions. Um, uh, Linux Functions, as in Functions, the runtime. When you go into right. Azure, you do Azure Functions. Um, the, the, they just announced Linux Functions as a public preview at, at Ignite. That's all built and running on Service Fabric Mesh as an internal t- team we're doing. And then we're working with a lot of external customers um, who are also building their services on this now. And you know, testing side, giving us lots of feedback, and and really having quite a fun time, enjoying themselves. You know, just going straight into the application development. Cool. So, you know, as somebody who's interested and focuses on IoT a lot, I've heard that Service Fabric is coming to IoT solutions. What does that look like? Uh, oh, uh, you maybe you know more than I do. I know that. I know that I was told that at least 30 to 40% of all the IoT deployments inside Azure use Service Fabric as the back end. Um, certainly all of the high scale ones do. Um, and you know, when you hit to some certain scale limit, uh, you know, that's where Service Fabric becomes the best choice. Well, there's uh, there's two pieces. There's that piece, but then there's also on the edge, I think is what he was asking. About. Oh, oh, on the edge. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that's that's a... Yeah, so that's the back end that if you build things there. On the edge, there's another interesting side of it all. Mark Rosonovich at Build did a great demo. If you go and look at his data center talk at Build, he showed Service Fabric deployed onto edge devices um, so that we can run Service Fabric, say, on Raspberry Pi machines or smaller pieces of compute. So now, uh, if you imagine that I could build an application um, and I could deploy it inside Azure, but at the same time, I could set up machines on the edge and deploy exactly the same application there. The key element there is that Service Fabric provides you the reliability across a set of machines. Uh, so let's give the scenario. One of the scenarios we were given was sometimes there are three or four cameras that are all linked together. 
and one of them is wants to do some more data processing than the others. Uh, but you can take advantage of making the the, com the compute of all the cameras uh, linked together, so I can use the compute from all of them to analyze images from one of the cameras ah, better than yeah. the others. And so they become clustered. Yes. Cool. And so now, uh, rather than all of them having to be powerful, you know, one of them can just, you know, they can distribute the, the image recognition software across them all uh, to see what's happening. Um, or if you just want to make things more reliable. So, for example, we've seen a lot of people now bring machine learning to the edge compute. And so there are scenarios, for example, where oil companies are using machine learning on oil pumps in order to figure out the best way of pumping the oil out of the, the pumps. Um, before they used to get someone who used to tweak the pump and things like this. Now they have a machine learning model running on the edge, but they want high availability there in the hardware. They don't want you know one machine just to die and their machine learning model fails. So that's the that's where that's where service fabric is also going on to edge. So it sounds like it sounds like service fabric like for like a base install they must have like super low requirements is what I'm hearing. It has part of it actually. Part of the project we're doing for Edge is we're having to strip down some of the yeah. unnecessary things that you don't need at the moment. Um, you know, when you go and stand a service fabric cluster up inside Azure, we hook it up to you know automated patching, and we hook it up to uh, like we turn on uh, this chaos testing by default, and there are a bunch of additional services you don't need running on the Edge. At least are optional. So a lot of it has to do with stripping you know so the minimal okay. pieces down to run onto the Edge. Yeah, which, which actually this this might be a really stupid question, but the the camera thing made me think of this. So, are they if you have three cameras and then you buy a fourth? I mean, is there, are is it sort of able to join the cluster, or is that not something that that happens like automatically? Oh no, no, that's exactly the goal. The goal is there's a piece of hardware that's been sitting there on a shelf for you know a couple of years. Someone takes it out, they plug it in, it uses a, a hardware identification to initially download. Uh, some packages to get it booted up securely. So that's all done through sort of IoT Hub. And then it reaches out into, IO, after talking to IoT Hub and getting sort of local secure package, packages to say, oh, it gets configured to join into a particular service fabric cluster and then download applications onto it. So yes, the whole idea is it's sort of plug and play to plug in a new camera. It discovers uh, where it should be running and it joins into the set of other machines inside all that. Well, that's, that's really cool. That's super really cool, cool, yes. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I'm just, I, you know, I, I want this future where, like, everything in my house is, like, combining, right? Like, I'm running this new ML algorithm, and it's, like, using the CPU in my TV to, like, assist. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the goal. Well, going yeah. back to all that machine learning we were talking about with, you know, yeah. that's, uh, you know, when you want that lawyer, it should take advantage of everything running inside your house, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's yeah. the idea. You know, today, it doesn't do all of that. Um, the more you hook these things up, the more they kind of sort of can talk to each other, and the more they can sort of offload work and the something fails another thing does so that, that's the, yeah. that's the goal especially as you see much more of this machine learning running on edge devices um, well, yeah everybody laughs at iot toasters but uh, who's going to be laughing with all that extra processing power I'm getting? <laughs> 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 exactly so that's that's the cool thing around this all um, yep but yes yeah so ultimately the idea is that if i build something in azure i can deploy it on the edge okay as well cool. so that's that's pretty cool um yeah, and then other things that we're doing inside service fabric generally, you know, we're just making the platform more robust, more scalable. Um, if you're a service fabric user today, we're making it run across availability zones. Uh, we're integrating mm -hmm. it um, across managed service identity, so you can get the identity for the actual application running instances inside there, and, and generally making sure that 
your your current offering um, has you know all the advances happening inside Azure in terms of you know particularly around availability and reliability and like that. Super cool. Okay, so how much is uh, how much is all this going to cost me? Uh, well, actually, the good thing about Service Fabric Mesh is that it's all priced per second for your containers, how they run based okay. upon the CPU and the memory they use. Um, and that's it. So you decide to say, if you have an application that has five services inside that, and each service you know, uses, say, two cores of compute, uh, so you could say 10 cores, and then they do, say, you know, 20 gigs of memory, you just pay for the number of cores and the number of compute um, on a per second billing basis. And, you know, if you scale your application up, you pay for more. If you scale it down, you pay for less. Um, and it's simply a meter around compute uh, memory. And if you use the service fabric storage technologies, uh, you can pay for the compute inside that, uh, sorry, the storage inside that, which is at mostly the same cost as Cosmos DB for highly available replicated storage. Okay. Um, and so that, that's all you pay for. So, and it's per second billing. So as soon as you scale it down, um, you can scale it back up again, and that's all you pay for. We're looking at particularly the pricing. A lot of people have been talking about as I scale out a large number of instances, can I buy um, the compute in advance? Yes, you can. As you buy your normal, um, you know, you get discount rates for purchasing compute in advance. So like reserved yeah. compute. Reserved compute, yes. Yeah. Uh, that, you can do reserved compute prices, and so you can get reduced prices across them all as well. So that significantly reduces the cost if you want reserved compute around them all. Okay, cool. So it's, it's pretty cool stuff, actually. Um, mm -hmm. especially the per second billing. Um, and, and this very much fits into, in fact, uh, all of this fits in very much with our serverless offering. So another scenario that's a key element around this all that we're working very closely with is that uh, we've already shown that because you can run any runtime, we're going to be thinking a lot about how we run Azure Functions inside this. Um, today, of course, Azure Functions 2.0 that we released Ignite runs inside a container. If you want to use that as your favorite runtime, go for it. Uh, we're continuing to work very closely with the functions team now who will probably all say, I want to build an application and I want to just have one of my services use functions and another one use Node.js. And now I get the debugging okay. experience inside Visual Studio, That's debug cool. it locally, That's cool. deploy it. That's super cool. Yeah. And, then the, and then there's other super cool scenarios because Service Fabric Mesh fits into our serverless technologies. Uh, we're making sure it works very well with Event Grid. So what's the scenario here? I have Event Grid that sends me lots and lots of notifications from different resources about what they're doing. So say, for example, I have a storage account that's building up lots and lots of images that I'm trying to process. The number of notifications that get sent from Event, event Grid increases. It's very easy now to hook that up to the auto-scale capabilities inside Service Fabric Mesh to say, oh, I've now got over a certain threshold of events from Event Grid I want you to go from one instance of my service to 50 instances, processes it, and go back down again. And it'll scale up and scale down within a matter of minutes in order to achieve that. So that those combinations uh, make it incredibly um, scalable on event-based systems uh, based around event grid and, and you know, event hub and things like that. So I think that's a super cool scenario um, mm -hmm. with the event grid, uh, service fabric mesh, and functions integration, that combination uh, with storage putting into remote storage uh, like cosmos db is where i think the direction is going for a lot of these high scale highly available very fast um, to develop applications 
Yeah. And, and, you know, the key there, eventually, is that service fabric over the years focused on long-running services. So it's things that run forever, but we didn't do much on short-running. And then functions sort of focused on the short-running and didn't do long-running. Right. Now we're bringing those together into one world. So I can have one service that's running there for years and another one that launches in a matter of seconds and goes back down again, all running inside the same application. So Yeah, think, that really seems like the holy grail. Like I... I just want to write this piece of code that maybe processes these messages or maybe it just wakes up every five minutes and does this thing. And then, you know, like you said, in service fabric, I want to also have this service sitting over here. That's, that's long running. That's doing some processing. That's, that's great. Cause to me, like, I, you know, I actually just had a uh, recently had a conversation about this and somebody was like, Oh, there's always been this world where you have both of those things. And I'm like, I don't want that. Like I want, because, and I was thinking more of like the, the containerized world and like Kubernetes. If I have, if I have this cluster set up and 99% of my stuff is running in this cluster, that 1%, I'm going to want to eradicate it. And if it's Azure functions, I'm going to say, Hey, I want to get these into container and bring these over. And they're like, why would you want to do that? And it's like, cause it's the 1%. It's, it's the leftover bits that I just, I want to get into there. But if you can have all those things, you know, all living in the same world, then, then that desire goes away. It's like, Oh, this is all running in mesh and it all works happily together. That's great. All right. Exactly. And this is, this is the goal around the whole, you know, direction of that development, make it easy to build, you know, highly scalable, highly available applications, right? Just describe things as an ARM definition. Everything is policy driven. I can bring any runtime of my choice. I get all the benefits of the DevOps pipeline of security. I don't have to think about certificate rollover or certificate management or any of that stuff thing. I get a variety of different storage technologies for my state management. Off I go. Um, and that's the, you know, the focus of the whole, you know, direction of the development of these um cool. and yeah and i think it's super cool like we can take runtimes like this you know even even in the AKS world we see people taking functions runtime putting that inside containers and splitting yep. it up inside That's there done. um yeah exactly and uh and you know they they too are you know experiencing that sort of you know pick any program model of your choice around and you know run this inside uh you know the environment you know the containers okay anything else interesting in store for the future then that you wanted to mention uh, no, I think that, you know, really kind of the investment around service fabric continues to be very deep um, yeah. across all our services. You know, it's great that we're having this serverless offering around service fabric mesh. Uh, we continue to invest in our current offerings so that you'll see all of, uh, you know, the clustering technology there today continue to have capabilities added. Um, and, you know, eventually it also comes to the edge. So we're, we're kind of excited that, you know, you're seeing service fabric available across all these different environments. Um, and really, I'd like to think that, you know, over the next, you know, year, you'll see how you build microservice applications become even easier with things like mesh and also even easier with inside service fabric clusters that we have today as we add more capabilities inside there. Um, so, yeah, deep investment, deep investment across the company on service fabric as, long, as well as AKS, as well as app service, you know, those three you know, are sort of the killer platforms that allow us to build all the developer suites that we have. Cool. Very exciting. <laughs> okay. Uh, Carl, moving on, what do you have for the dev tip of the week? So this kind of goes back to our comment of the week. Uh, when I read that comment from Hawken, I kind of did that Windows Control C and just to remember what it was because I couldn't remember and I didn't see anything happen. And I'm like, that's really odd. Um so I did a little bit of searching on that. If you go into, if you're on the one of the newer versions of Windows 10, because uh, that was two 
versions ago that he gave us that comment and that we mentioned it on the show. Mm -hmm. But if you do that now, it probably won't work for you. So if you go into Windows settings, search for color filters, uh, you'll see that it's that shortcut is disabled by default. So you can re-enable that. But I'm the, guessing people cooler, were hitting it accidentally or yeah. or it was mostly being used as a prank. <laughs> but, however, this is what's really cool. And I, and I, I kind of put this in for you, Jason, because yeah. I think we discussed on the show before that uh, you have a form of colorblindness. Mm-hmm. And now there's some additional options. Instead of just going to grayscale, you can do inverted grayscale grayscale inverted, or you can add a filter that will adjust the color palette if you have one of those color blindnesses to make the colors more distinct. So it's not to try to correct anything, but it's just to make you visualize and detect those colors a little bit more uh, distinctly. Because they added it to iPhone like a year ago. And to be honest with you, I, and I actually read about other colorblind people, they were trying this out and they're just like, "Uh, I really... I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so let me, I'll have to turn it on here. Color filter. Oh, color filter settings. Yes. In settings. In turn on color filters. Whoa. Yeah. I'm instant grayscale now. So if I do red, green. Red. And it, it, it lists them out. If you are uh Deuteranopia, yeah. or Tritonopia. I think I'm the, I think of the Deuteranopia. I can't remember. I haven't taken the test in a couple of months. I was looking at those colorblind uh, glasses. Yeah, it's hard to tell. Oh, yeah. But anyways, it also it provides looks a bad. color wheel there. It provides a yeah. color wheel there for you, too. And, you know, even if you don't have those uh, color blindnesses, you'll see that oh, some of them are easier and harder to uh, uh, distinguish from each other. Oh, yeah. So... They don't make it. There's no way to see it with it off, though. Yeah, you just do Windows Control C then. No, because when you turn it off, the gray, the uh, the color wheel doesn't change. Oh. Hmm. Found a bug. We need we need a colorblind person working on this feature. <laughs> clearly. <laughs> yeah, because it turns. You should volunteer, weird. Jason. So it's on. So it turns it on and I can see it turning it on and off on the system. Oh no, it does turn it on and off. Okay. It's just such a tiny difference with that red green mode. Uh, but my screen isn't big enough. I can't look at the color wheel while I'm doing it. <laughs> um, well, I anyways, I, I thought yeah. this might be useful uh, for people, you know, who have a form of color blindness or is wondering why their grayscale isn't working anymore. I definitely on the protonopia, I can definitely distinguish the colors whereas i can't on uh uh whenever it's whenever it's turned off i mean like it's really hard to distinct actually there are two on there that i literally cannot distinguish unless i have that mode on so i guess it works so it's just gonna look really weird it's gonna be one of those things when somebody else sees it so yeah i have to do the red green uh protonopia um some of the stuff in windows looks kind of funky but i actually can distinguish all the colors then that's pretty cool I have to remember that because what, what this what the the time that it always comes into play is in charts, you know, because I'll have two different lines and they're the same color to me. So very cool. Anyway, um, Mark, where can people find you? Uh, you can contact me on uh, at Twitter at uh, mfussel m f u s s e l l, or uh, that's the best way of contacting me. Um, 
or you can just tweet as well to, at Service Fabric as well. And we always kind of spend a lot of time kind of following the Service Fabric Twitter and uh, replying to questions inside there. Very cool. So yeah, Our, feel, reach out. Oh, to go ahead, Mark. Yeah. And we'll have, uh, we'll have links to like everything in the show notes, everything that you've been talking about. And uh, Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So Mark, thank you so much for coming on here and talking about Service Fabric Mesh. This is super cool and I'm excited to try it out. Thank you. 